Philistine. Goliath is out there on the battlefield. He's the champion of the Philistine army. And there the Philistine army is camped opposite uh, the Israelite army. And every day this Goliath character who's over nine feet tall, complete with his armor and his weaponry that weighs over 150 pounds, he comes out to the front lines and he yells out at the Israelite crowd, Hey, who is man enough to face me? Tell you what, instead of both of our armies coming to the front lines and obliterating each other, you just pick one of your soldiers. You pick your very best, and we'll just fight one-on-one. And whoever wins, their side wins. And if I get killed by your soldier, the Philistine army will be your slaves. But if I kill your soldier, you'll become the Philistine slaves. And every day he's coming out and he's taunting the Israelites and he's making this bold challenge. Who's willing to fight me? And you remember what happened. The Israelite soldiers said, "Uh uh-uh, that guy's too tall. I'm not going to fight him. And one day a little pipsqueak teenager by the name of David comes out simply to bring some supplies to his older brothers who were actually old enough to be in the army. And he brings them supplies and he hears Goliath making his taunt and he goes to the the Israelite soldiers and eventually to King Saul and says, don't worry about this Goliath guy, I'll fight him. I love the story of David because David was a man of great faith, wasn't he? And I love the story of David because he was a man of great boldness. He had some boldness to fight a guy that was probably like four feet taller than he was. That's pretty bold. And you know, another reason I love David is because he was a young man that thought outside the box. You see, every soldier in the Israelite army figured, if I am going to fight Goliath, I have to fight him with the same weapons that Goliath fights with. Which means I have to go fight Goliath with a sword in my hand and a spear and a shield. I have to go fight him with these things. And if I go one-on-one with this pugil stick against Goliath, He's going to eat me for lunch. And so they were scared to death. And then here's David. He looks at the box and he thinks outside the box. He basically says, you know what? I don't need a sword. I don't need a spear. I don't need a shield. I don't need these things. If I end up needing a sword, I'll just borrow Goliath because after I'm through with him, he won't need it anymore. And so he's all I need is my little sling and a few smooth stones and the Lord Almighty on my side. And he goes out there and he goes in the little stream. He gets his five little stones and puts them in his little shepherd bag. He pulls out one of those stones. He chucks it. Bam! Right in the noodle. He topples over. Goliath is down. David goes up. Goliath, you mind if I borrow your sword? Takes it off, hacks his head off, holds the head up of Goliath, and the Philistine army is in absolute panic. David was a man who, when God was on his side, knew that he could think outside the box and win the victory. He was a lot like the church in Antioch. Open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 11. We've, over the last couple weeks, been looking at the first of the impact-making churches in the, in the book of Acts. We looked at the church of Jerusalem in Acts chapters 1 and 2. Today we're going to fast forward about 14 years and look at this second impact church, the church of Antioch in Acts chapter 11. 
Acts chapter 11. We saw over the last couple weeks that the Jerusalem church prayed for greater impact and they prioritized for greater impact. And we're called to do the same. But this morning as we go to Acts chapter 11, we're going to see that this church in Antioch had a revolutionary, out-of-the-box style of outreach and evangelism that not only transformed their city and their community, it was a style of outreach that actually ended up transforming the entire world. We ourselves, who are Christians and not Jewish, have to take our hats off to the church at Antioch because they paved the way for Gentiles to be able to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. As always, I encourage you to pull out your message notes from your bulletin. They look like this. Also a pen or a pencil so you can fill in some blanks and jot down some notes along the way. And then we're all in Acts chapter 11. If you're there, say amen. All right, Acts chapter 11, starting in 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. May God bless us as we study his word together today. You may remember that the theme verse of the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, told his followers, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, number one, in Jerusalem, number two, in all Judea and Samaria, and number three, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this provides a beautiful little three-point outline for the book of Acts. If you look at the first seven chapters of Acts, you'll find the first phase being carried out, the phase in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus' apostles and also those 120 uh, that were there gathered in Jerusalem, those early Christians, they were spreading the good news primarily in Jerusalem. They were saturating the city with the message of Jesus Christ. But remember in Acts chapter 7, one of the deacons in the early church by the name of Stephen kind of ruffled some feathers in the Jewish community, didn't he? And they end up dragging him forth, and they hear his testimony, but they don't like what they hear, so they end up picking up rocks and chucking him at Stephen. He dies as the first martyr 
of the Christian church. And it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, After Stephen was martyred there in Jerusalem, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and it forced most of the Christians outside of the city into the regions of Judea and Samaria. So chapters 1 through 7 are phase 1, saturating Jerusalem with the gospel. Phase 2 begins in chapter 8, Acts 8, 1, most of the Christians are spread throughout those surrounding regions, Judea and Samaria. We read about that in chapter 8 through about the mid part of chapter 11. And here this passage we just read begins the third and final phase of the Christian church where the gospel of Jesus Christ will be taken to the uttermost parts of the world. Now, I'd like us to get to know the city of Antioch because it'll help us wrap our minds around how amazing this church really was. The city of Antioch was located in Syria, uh, modern-day Turkey, and it was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And so it was no short distance from that city where Christianity had begun. It was a very beautiful city. It was a multi-ethnic city. Back then, it was nicknamed the Queen of the East. Because it was very wealthy, it had some important trade routes that came through it, and it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Only Rome and Alexandria had a larger population than Antioch did. Antioch, they estimate, had about half a million residents, 500,000 people who lived there in Antioch. There are some things that were taking place in Antioch that were absolutely amazing from an architectural and a design standpoint. There in Antioch, they had this road that was their main street that went through the downtown area of Antioch, and this road was four miles long. Now, in those days, it was impressive to have a paved road, but this four-mile-long road was paved with marble. Can you imagine? Four miles paved with marble. And on both the left and the right sides of the road were these marble columns that formed these colonnades. Colonnades are basically like the picture shows, the columns with a little roof on top. And so both sides of the road, four miles long, lined with these marble colonnades, marble streets running for four-plus miles through town, and this city of Antioch had something that no other city in Rome had. In the entire Roman Empire, no other city had streetlights. But Antioch did. It had streetlights. And so you could call it, like New York City, the city that never sleeps. Since it had these streetlights, since it had 500,000 people, since it had all these trade routes, since it was a very cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic community, very wealthy community, as you might guess, it had a hopping nightlife. And this hopping nightlife not only made it like New York City, made it even more like Las Vegas. What happened in Antioch stayed in Antioch. Now, many of you have heard me talk about Corinth, which was known as the most sinful city in the Roman Empire. Corinth, up above the city, was this plateau called Acro-Corinth. You may remember that. It's a thousand-mile plateau above the city of Corinth. And at one time, that plateau area had a temple that boasted 1,000 temple prostitutes. Well, Antioch wasn't quite that bad, but it was a close second. Because four or five miles outside of the proper part of the town, the downtown area, about four or five miles outside was this temple to Daphne. And the legend went that Daphne was a young human maiden who fell in love with the god Apollo. 
And one day Apollo decided to chase Daphne down. And so Daphne is running from Apollo, but not running too fast so she can get caught. And Apollo has his way with her and to protect her from what mankind may do to her, Apollo, according to legend, transformed Daphne into a laurel bush. And so outside of this temple to Daphne, on the outskirts of town, were these laurel groves with all these laurel bushes and laurel trees. And this temple would have priestesses. That's a nice way of saying temple prostitutes. And every single night, these priestesses would run through the laurel groves reenacting Apollo chasing down Daphne and the men would catch up with the temple prostitutes and have their way with them having sexual relations out there in the laurel groves and this went on night after night after night and so throughout the Roman Empire when they used the phrase the morals of Daphne that referred to sexual immorality which was so so prevalent in the city of Antioch. So it was, yes, a rich city, a very wealthy city, uh, a very, might say, state-of-the-art type city with its architecture and its design elements, but it was also a very wicked, depraved, perverted city. It's no wonder that the Roman Empire looked down in some ways on the city of Antioch. Being like the Las Vegas of the ancient world, like the Sin City with its bright lights and its entertainment, lots of people committing fornication and adultery. It's kind of interesting that this is the city where Jesus' followers were first called Christians. It's kind of interesting that this is the city that Jesus used to spread the gospel throughout the entire world. So there are four steps we see in this passage we just read a few moments ago together. Four steps, and really, if you look at this passage we just read, uh, starting in verse 19, going all the way through the end of the chapter, you'll see there's four short paragraphs. And in each of these paragraphs, we find a progressive step built upon what has just taken place in the church. And it's not until the end of the third paragraph that they are called Christians. And so they're doing things in the first paragraph that are state-of-the-art for a church, that are groundbreaking, out-of-the-box But it's not until they build upon it that they're first called Christians there in Antioch. Let's take a look at each of these steps that build on each other. Step number one, there in the first paragraph, verses 19 through 21. The Antioch church reached out to witness to those who were far from Christ. They reached out to witness to those who were far from Christ. This was the first major step they took to being called Christians and being used of God to reach the world. Now, if you look at the prior chapter, Acts chapter 10, I was just reading that in my devotion time a few days ago. In Acts chapter 10, you remember that Peter sees that vision of of God bringing down from heaven this sheet filled with all these uh, four-legged creatures that were considered by the Jewish people to be unclean. Probably pigs and and probably uh, other types of, of animals and birds and reptiles that a Jewish person would never eat because they're not kosher. This blanket was being let down, the sheet was being let down, and the voice from heaven said, Peter, kill and eat. And the message that was conveyed to Peter was, do not call any person unclean that God has chosen to save. Peter ends up in chapter 10 going into the home of a man named Cornelius, who is not a Jew, and Peter wins him to Christ. So some would think that the door was open for non-Jews to be brought to the gospel 
to be brought to salvation in chapter 10. But there was something big missing in chapter 10. Because Cornelius, who came to a saving knowledge of Christ, is called in chapter 10 a God-fearer. That was a fancy way in those days of saying a man who believed in Yahweh, who worshipped Yahweh and obeyed Jewish laws, but he had not taken the final step to be circumcised. So the Jews did not consider him truly Jewish because he hadn't been circumcised. But this was a man who came to Christ, him and his household, that followed moral laws in the Old Testament. He believed in Yahweh and he worshipped Yahweh to the best of his ability. But he hadn't been circumcised. You might consider it to or liken it to a, a follower of Jesus who has not yet been baptized. Can someone who has not been baptized believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Can he? Sure. Can someone who has not been baptized obey the New Testament laws that Jesus gives to Christians? Yes. But just as someone who refuses to be circumcised is not truly considered Jewish, and there's no example of a Jew in the Old Testament who wasn't circumcised, there's no example of a Christian in the New Testament who hasn't been baptized. You're missing a key ingredient of what Jesus had in mind for us to make it clear, I am following Jesus Christ from this point forward. I'm signing on the dotted line. I'm proclaiming to the world, I am a follower of Jesus now. And so that step of baptism is critical for anyone who wants to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so back to what was going on here in chapter 11. Here we have something that's absolutely groundbreaking, out of the box, because unlike Cornelius, the people that the Christians in Antioch are leading to a salvation knowledge of Christ are not God-fearers. Many of them probably didn't even believe in God. Many of them, most of them, didn't follow any of God's laws given to us in Scripture. They never went to synagogue. They weren't in any way Jewish. They were just pagans, Gentiles, Greeks, who could care less about God and care less about God's laws. And these individuals were being reached out to with the gospel of Jesus Christ and led to a saving knowledge of them. Absolutely groundbreaking. It says there in verse 30, they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The church's groundbreaking initiative paid off. God's hand was with them. In other words, God blessed their work, which resulted in dozens, possibly even hundreds of people getting saved, coming to a knowledge of Christ. Do you think it would be safe to say at this point that the church in Antioch was a good church? You think so? Yeah, I do. At this point in time, sharing with non-Jews, sharing with Greeks, sharing with pagans, and seeing them not only get saved, but embracing them and receiving them into the church once they were saved, that's huge. Some churches are happy to see someone who's all tatted up give their life to Christ and get baptized, but don't necessarily want that guy that's all tatted up starting to attend every Sunday morning. Many churches don't mind a, a druggie coming to Christ and getting baptized. But they don't necessarily want that druggie coming to church. A lot of churches out there are happy to see the salvation, 
but don't take that second critical step to embrace them and welcome them into the community. And that's exactly what the church at Antioch was doing. These people that didn't know a lick of anything about God's word in the scriptures, they embraced him, brought him into the church, but they needed a second step because these people didn't know much of anything about God or how to follow him, and they needed to be discipled. That leads us to the second paragraph, verses 22 through 24. In these verses, they realize that these baby Christians, these new believers, needed to reach out to encourage. They needed encouragement. They needed to be built up in their faith. They needed to be discipled. And so what happens, we find in verse 22, that the church went from out-of-the-box evangelism to out-of-the-box encouragement. This news about what was going on in Antioch, this groundbreaking ministry, reached the ears of those apostles and, and other Christians there in Jerusalem in the area of Judea. And so they decided, the church did, to send Barnabas to check out what was going on in Antioch and make sure it was on the up and up. And so the apostles sent Barnabas to travel these 300 miles north to Antioch. And they picked the perfect man for the job because if these young Christians needed encouragement, you might as well bring in the guy whose nickname was Son of Encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. And so Barnabas goes up and he checks out what's going on. Barnabas was the embodiment of Hebrews 10.24. In Hebrews 10.24, God's Word tells us, Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Barnabas was a big encourager. I think we should be big encouragers, too, to new believers. Amen? Verse 23, we read that Barnabas arrived at the Antioch church. He saw the evidence of the grace of God. So what does he do? He did what he did so well. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. And look at the results in verse 24. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now, some may ask, what's the big deal? A great number of people were brought to the Lord. But didn't we read in verse 21 the exact same thing happened before Barnabas ever got there? You look at verse 21. What does it say at the end there? A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 24, after Barnabas arrives, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. What's the difference? Here's the difference, and I think it's really important. When churches are doing something that's groundbreaking and the Holy Spirit is upon it, it's not uncommon for a lot of people to come to Christ in a short amount of time. But what tends to happen is, over time, the decisions will drop off. And so I'm convinced that even though a great number of people came to the Lord in verse 21 before Barnabas got there, if there hadn't been encouragement penetrating that baby church... And penetrating those new believers, I don't think that that great influx of new believers would have continued. If that encouragement hadn't been going on, I don't think that they would have seen continually dozens and maybe even hundreds of people come to the Lord week after week and month after month. Barnabas' role of encouragement was critical. And so I think this is important for us to keep in mind as we have this launch of impact coming up in just six weeks. On October 6th, we will have a whole lot of people show up on our grand opening. I can't say for sure how many, but my guess is somewhere around 300 people will be there for that grand opening service. 
The mayor's planning on being there. Other city council members, I believe, are going to be there. Others, I think, even from the uh, supervisor's office are going to be there, possibly from uh, uh, Senator Cook's office, or Congressman Cook, excuse me. And So when it comes down to it, we're going to probably have some big wigs show up, and we're going to have a lot of curious people from the community show up because our banners look great, our invitations are going out, our uh, online social media advertising is going to be really good over the next month. A lot of people are going to show up. So my question is, they show up on the first day, fantastic, great start. What's going to keep them there? What's going to keep them there? It's one thing to show up on the first day to check something new out. What's going to keep them there? Making connections? That's a big part of it. Last week we talked about our number one focus on a Sunday morning with Impact Christian Church is going to be love. Loving God and loving people. Everyone who steps into the door, we're going to love them and show them the love of Christ, whether they're saved or unsaved whether they look like they belong in church or whether they look like they've never stepped foot in the church. We're going to show them the love of Jesus Christ. And when we show them the love of Jesus Christ, believe me, encouragement is a huge, huge part of it. So on that first day, I think a lot of those visitors are going to have a little bit of the wow factor when we give them those cool little tumblers with a free Kona Ice certificate in there because you know the Kona Ice truck's coming on our first day. So right out there in front of the school, we'll have the Kona Ice truck, and they'll be serving up the Kona Ice right after the service. Uh, we're going to give some of those free gift cards to those visitors that come for the first time. And a lot of them will say, wow, that's cool. But the Kona Ice probably won't get them back the second week. What gets them back the second week is when this church loves on them in a way that they've never been loved on before in any place they ever entered, including, for many, their own families. I can't wait to see what happens when we unleash Melly Bond on the community of Victorville. How many of you love seeing Melly handing out those bulletins on a Sunday morning? Man. I can't wait to see Melly over there handing out those bulletins and doing what Melly does so much better than I do it, which is being so sweet and friendly and loving in that lobby. I can't wait to see what happens when those kids, many of them probably haven't been to church in a long time, get to experience our Impact Kids ministry over there with Miss Christie and our team. We've got some amazing teachers back there in our children's wing. I can't wait to unleash them on those kids that start coming over to church on October 6th. I can't wait to see what happens when people are pulling into the parking lot. And we've got Manuel over there, the man in orange who every Sunday here at the church is out there with that vest on, and he's praying for people, and he's praying for those across the street at the soccer fields, and he's helping those that need help. I can't wait to unleash Manuel, and we're going to get him some help, by the way, out in the parking lot. We need at least four guys out in the parking lot at the new place. I can't wait to unleash Manuel (laughs) and his new lean, mean machine on the community of Victorville. Oh, what a blessing it's going to be. You know what? As your pastor, I'm so proud of you. We've got some of the salt of the earth in this church. And I feel bad at times when I think we've got the salt of the earth. We've got the Mellies. We've got the manuals. We've got the children's ministry workers. 
We've got those of you that help with sound, whether it's Javier or, or Patrick and our praise team or all those that come up here and lead us in worship. I feel bad at times because here we are out on George Boulevard and hardly anybody walks through the door for the first time. And so most of Victor Valley doesn't know how awesome this church is. But they're about to find out. And encouragement is going to be a critical ingredient to bring them back on the second week. On the first week, we'll impress them with some cone ice and some stuff, and it'll be all nice with all the pomp and circumstance of the mayor and the bigwigs out there and cutting the ribbon and having the videographer and all that stuff. It's going to be really cool. But what's going to bring them back is the Holy Spirit working through you and working through me. Loving them, encouraging them, just like Barnabas did at this church in Antioch. Well, they weren't done yet. Notice by the end of the second paragraph here, by the time you get to verse 25, they're still not called Christians yet. They've got this out-of-the-box witnessing taking place. They're sharing the gospel with pagans. That's awesome. They're encouraging these new believers and encouraging others to come to Christ that haven't become believers yet. That's incredible. Encouragement was a critical ingredient. But they're not yet called Christians. There was something else needed. Step number three, they needed to reach out to teach new believers. We find that in verses 25 and 26. They needed to reach out to teach new believers. I love verses 25 and 26. It says, then Barnabas went to Tarsus. Now catch this. Tarsus was 100 miles from Antioch. That's like hoofing it from here to north San Diego. Barnabas leaves the Antioch church, walks down to Tarsus to get Saul. Why did he do this? He went to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. One thing I love about Barnabas is that he realized that as well as the church in Antioch was doing, it needed more than he alone could offer. In order to take the church to the next level, Barnabas needed some help. So he humbly sets out for Tarsus to find Saul, the murderer turned evangelist. And that was a trip of some hundred miles. And he goes and he finds Saul. He brings him back. And as they arrive in Tarsus together, together they teach large numbers of people how to follow Christ now that they're saved. It wasn't a once a week teaching. It wasn't light teaching. It was out of the box discipleship, which included solid, meaty, daily teaching from God's word. And then and only then, at the end of the third paragraph, do we find that those believers in Antioch were called Christians. Now, Bible scholars are pretty sure that that term Christian was not something that those believers of Christ adopted for themselves first. They're pretty sure that it was kind of an insult that others that were not followers of Jesus mocked them by calling them Christians because that word Christian means little Christ, follower of Christ or Christ's men. And so it was probably an insult initially. And then those believers said, you know what? Maybe they intended it as an insult, but I kind of like that insult. I kind of like being called Christ man. I kind of like being called Christ woman. I kind of like being called a little Christ because that's my greatest goal in life is to bring Him glory by becoming more and more and more like Him. And so they went ahead and said, you know what? 
we'll go ahead and take that name for ourselves and start referring to ourselves as that. That's okay with us. They were called Christians first in Antioch. The Antioch church was filled with Christ men and women. In that, late, in that crazy Las Vegas culture, they prioritized out-of-the-box sharing of Christ with non-Jews. People that everybody else seemed too scared or too unconcerned to reach, they reached them anyway. They prioritized out-of-the-box encouragement, prodding each other on to love and good deeds, and they prioritized out-of-the-box teaching, digging deeply into God's Word on a daily basis. And the icing on the cake we find in verses 27 through 30, that fourth paragraph, these Antioch Christians reached out to give generously. They reached out to give generously. Now, most churches in those days and most churches in our day will wait for a need to arise and then they'll take a collection to meet that need. But these Christians in Antioch were different. This prophet comes and he prophesies that at some point in the near future, there's going to be this famine in and around Jerusalem in that region of Judea. And so these Christians, they kind of jump the gun. They don't wait and see, and see if the prophecy is actually fulfilled. Let's, let's just wait. And when we get some, some clear, hard evidence that the, the famine is underway, we'll go ahead and take a collection and send it to those that are affected. Not at all. As soon as they find out about this prophecy that it's going to happen, they take a collection to meet the need in advance. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So before the people in Judea even knew that a famine was coming, imagine the money showing up to the Jerusalem church and the other churches in the surrounding region. Hey, here's a collection for you. Uh, What's the collection for? It's for the famine that you don't even know about yet, uh, but put it away because it's coming. Believe us. God bless you. Can you imagine? Such a generous church. Outrageous, out-of-the-box generosity. You know something I love about this church? I love the generosity in this church. And one of my most fun things that I get to do as a pastor is to be the deliverer of generous gifts quite often. I remember we used to have a sweet little older lady that attended the church here. She passed away a few years ago, but she was a sweet lady. And she was... She was kind of a grumpy, sweet lady. Know what I mean? You had to dig a little while to find the sweetness. On the surface, man, she was gruff. If you've been going to church here a few years and you're thinking of somebody, it's probably not her. She was a bit of a wallflower. Most people didn't know her. But she came to church here fairly often. And every once in a while, she'd pull me aside with that stern look on her face. And she would hand me a $100 bill and ask me to bless somebody in the church who's in need. And so whenever that happened, it's like, boo, my antennas go up. Okay, Lord, who is it? And I'd start panning the room and start thinking about the situations I knew about of families in our church. And it was so cool being able to walk up to someone and say, someone in this church anonymously wanted to bless you with this gift and hand them that $100 bill and see the look on their faces. It was awesome. It wasn't too long ago, a family in our church learned about a family with several kids that was living in a, to be honest with you, a cheap motel. We're just about out of money. And this family came up to me and said, you know what, I want this to be done anonymously, but we're going to give $1,000 to the church, and we'd like you to give this $1,000 to that family anonymously. And so that happened. 
the very next week, that check came in. And I was able to go to that not-so-great motel in a not-so-great neighborhood. And I was able to go inside that motel room and bless that family with $1,000 that a family in this church wanted to give to that family in need to help them make it through another month. What a blessing. Over the last five years, it may have been more than this, but there are three that I know about. Over the last five years, there have been three different families that donated three used cars to give to families in need. And that's pretty cool when we get to go to a family. And there was one in particular I got to deliver. And I had the privilege of being able to slide that envelope across the table at a Del Taco in town with the title to a minivan to bless that family. This is a generous church. And just like the church in Antioch, when we give generously, God blesses us and uses us in some amazing ways. I came across a couple of quotes last week that I thought were so good. Winston Churchill used to say, We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Isn't that good? We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. And I love how Dave Ramsey teaches those that come to his financial peace class. He says, point blank, the most fun you can ever have with your money is to give it away generously. That's so true. And I've experienced that time and time and time again. This church here in Antioch, they were called Christians. They were followers of Christ who had out-of-the-box outreach, reaching out to those that other churches didn't want to reach and leading them to Christ. This was a church that had out-of-the-box encouragement, reaching out to those that were new in their faith and encouraging them to continue coming to church, encourage them to grow in their faith and turn around and lead others to a saving knowledge of Christ as well. This was a church that prioritized teaching those new believers, not dunking them and dropping them, but investing in those new believers and showing them the way to Christ and how to mature in Christ. And this was a church that had outrageous, out-of-the-box generosity. And they were the ones who were called Christians first. And we as believers and followers of Jesus Christ here in Victorville, we're called Christians too. And when it comes to outreach, when it comes to encouragement, when it comes to teaching, and when it comes to generosity, these are simply things that Christians do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the great example that was set by these Christians in Antioch. I thank You, Lord, that they paved the way for most of us in this room to be saved. Because most of us in this room are not Jewish. Most of us, before we came to Christ, were not God-fearers. Lord, we were just Gentiles. Many of us just pagans. And in Your grace, You put someone in our path to point us to Jesus Christ. Thank You for that. And Lord, in these upcoming weeks, as You put us in the paths of many people in this community who need Christ, help us to witness to them. 
and not allow the way that they look, the way that they talk, even the way that they smell to keep us, Lord, from sharing the good news with them. Help us, Lord, to be encouragers. Every single week we come together, Lord. Visitors are going to be coming through the door every single Sunday, Lord. Help us to speak words of encouragement in their lives. To love them, Lord, in a way that many maybe have never been loved before when they visited a church. Help us, Lord, to teach those that come to the faith. You know, Lord, I've spent a lot of time wrestling in recent weeks. God, how can I even from the very first month have some sort of salvation class, some sort of baptism class that we invite adults and teenagers and kids to, Lord, who want to make a decision for you but don't know quite how. Lord, help us to do that from our very first month. And Lord, as I put the plans together for a next steps class in that second month, Lord, to help new believers learn, Lord, how to study the Word of God on their own, how to have a devotion time, how to pray to you on their own, how to establish some of those basic habits as Christians. Help me and help our staff, Lord, as we put those things together because we want to teach them well. And Lord, you know the needs. I pray that you'd raise up generous givers in all of us. Lord, we do not simply need generous financial givers. Lord, we need ones to be generous with their time because it's going to take a lot of time to do well what we want to do every week. Lord, raise up those who would be generous with their talents and their spiritual gifts because we need a lot of talents and gifts and abilities tapped, Lord, to make this launch and this new adventure successful. God, you know my heart, but I can't do much. I can preach. I can teach. Lord, I can talk a lot. But there's so much that I stink at. But so much that many in this congregation are so good at. Lord, may we just work together like a finely oiled machine, doing what you've gifted each of us to do well, that maybe others of us in the room can't do as well. Lord, may we work together to impact this community in an amazing way. Lord, we've thrown out the gauntlet. We want to see at least a thousand baptisms in ten years, Lord. And that may be small-minded. Lord, we want to do this for you. For your glory. For the advancement of your kingdom. So help us, Lord, to follow in the footsteps of this Antioch church. To do what we do out of the box. For the glory of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I truly mean that. I stink at most things. I was visiting HDC a few years ago, and Tom Mercer said it this way. He said, we all suck at most things. But I don't like to use that word too much, so I'll say stink. He's right. That's one of the things that makes the church so amazing. When we do what we do working together. The praise team is going to come up one last time to lead us in a closing song. And As always, we never want you to leave without being prayed for. We had a time of prayer earlier, but if you need prayer today, grab me, grab one of us before you leave today. We'd love to pray with you, whatever your prayer need may be. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, maybe you're here today and you've made a decision, but you were never baptized and you never maybe connected the dots and saw that, you know what, baptism is part of that decision. I believe in Christ. I repent of my sins. I confess Him with my mouth and I get baptized.